Morning, everybody. Great to see you. Let's pray together, shall we? I'll use some words from a psalm to uh, uh, frame our prayer. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. So, Father, may these words of my mouth and the words we speak to each other and the meditation of our hearts now be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, on holiday many years ago uh, in France one time, uh, the family and I went and visited uh, a castle, and at the castle they had what's called a trebuchet. A trebuchet is basically, it's basically a French word for a kind of catapult. Huge thing, big swinging arm, big heavy kind of counterweight thing, put a rock in it, wind it up, and whew, and it would throw a stone, you know, half a mile or something, and you'd use it in the siege of a town or a castle or something like that. So we saw this thing. So we go back to the campsite. I can't remember quite what was happening that afternoon, but the kids are getting itchy and not doing much. I say, let's build our own trebuchet. So we go out and we find lots of sticks and wood and stuff and straighten them out, whatever, lots of string. (laughs) And we build something. It's, you know, it's an approximation. (laughs) But it could throw a stone at least, you know, six feet. (laughs) In fact, we even built a little cardboard castle that we then battered with the stones. It's the sort of thing the Bynans do on holiday. And as we sat there outside our tent throwing stones at things, people would walk past and go, look at that. What's that? And we'd say very proudly, it's a trebuchet, (laughs) otherwise known as a catapult. Um, I'd go, where's that? And we'd we'd explain. Obviously, this is a bit pathetic. It's just a little model. Go down to the castle, go over there, and you'll see the real thing. You'll see the big one. One way to think about how the Old Testament works, one way, is that God is giving us a model, a model of what he is doing, what he is building, but it's a model that then looks forward to the real thing, the actual thing that is so much bigger and better and more impressive. And that is what we've been seeing in the book of Joshua, if you've been following with us. We've seen it's a model of God's kingdom. That's what God is building in the world, the place where he will rule as king. He'll be seen and acknowledged and bowed before A place where he will live with his people in relationship with them as their king. In his kingdom, in a place of harmony and rest. That's the plan of what God is building. And we've seen in Joshua so far that the people have entered the promised land. 
and we've seen his kingdom start to be formed. They've defeated the inhabitants. They've started to settle. The land's being divided up amongst them. They're getting their inheritance in the land. And today, in the flow of the whole book of Joshua, we are seeing the finishing touches. These are the last bits. This is like the last bricks on the wall. That's why the end of chapter 21 is actually the great climax of the book. Because it says that the Lord gave Israel all the land and gave them rest and all of his promises to them are fulfilled. It's all been building to that moment. But it's all a model of the kingdom that he is now bringing truly through Jesus. The kingdom that he will bring fully and finally one day when Jesus returns. But it's a model that teaches us about that kingdom. Teaches us what God is doing. What he wants in his kingdom and what it is like. And as we see this last section. We're going to see three things about the kingdom. So first of all, God's kingdom is a place of justice. Chapter 20, uh, verse 1, the Lord said to Joshua, tell the Israelites to designate the cities of refuge as I instructed you through Moses, so that anyone who kills a person accidentally and unintentionally may flee there and find protection from the avenger of blood. So, uh, Moses, previous leader of God's people, he was told about these cities of refuge, as they're called, much earlier. And God's referring back and saying, uh, designate them as I instructed you through Moses. Now is the time to set them up. And we're reminded what these cities of refuge are for. We were told previously, but we're told again, verse 3, It's for anybody who kills a person accidentally and unintentionally. You see, previously in in, in the Bible, God had given his people his laws, his kind of code of living. Uh, What was a crime? What wasn't? How you should live? What you should do in this situation and that? and, And what punishments there should be for different crimes? And all of that giving of law showed us that God has a concern for right living amongst his people and right justice amongst his people. And if you murdered somebody, for example, intentionally and were found guilty of that, then you would be executed yourself. That raises all sorts of questions about the death penalty today. We're not going to go there. Uh, The reason for it was the sanctity, the preciousness, the value of human life. Human life was so important. That's why there was such a strong punishment. We're allowed to kill a chicken. We're not allowed to kill a person. They're made in the image of God. But God is also concerned about protecting his people from injustice. And that's what this section is all about. What happens if you kill somebody accidentally? And it might look like you've murdered them and would be executed for it. 
It's what we would now call some forms of manslaughter or accidental death. And earlier passages about this give some examples. What happens if you're in the, in, in the forest cutting trees down and you swing your axe and the head of the axe flies off and it hits somebody and kills them? Well, what then? Well, the problem would be that someone called the Avenger of Blood, verse 3, would try and bring justice. Now, that's, that's not like um, personal retribution. That's a d- designated position, someone within the clan or the family who would bring justice, bring vengeance. And if it was accidental then, God said, have these cities of refuge. The person may flee there and find protection. So, verse 4, when they flee to one of these cities, they're to stand in the entrance of the city gate and state their case before the elders of the city. Then the elders admit the fugitive into the city and provide a place to live among them. And then if the avenger of blood comes along, the elders mustn't surrender the fugitive because they killed their neighbor unintentionally, without malice or forethought. They weren't planning it. Now, there was to then be a trial um, uh, to evaluate what this person had or hadn't done. It wasn't just taken on their word. But assuming they're not guilty, and that's what's assumed here, verse 6, they would then stay in the city until they'd stood trial and until the death of the high priest who was serving at that time, then they could go back to their home. And then we're told, verse 7, which cities they set apart. There are six in all. If you look at them on a map, they're basically nicely evenly spread. Kind of northwest, northeast, in the middle, south, etc. So no one city is too far away from wherever you are. They were all within a, you could get to a city within a day's journey from anywhere in Israel. So what do we see about God's kingdom? as it is set up here. It's to be a place of justice, including this form of protective justice. Uh, God hates the guilty going unpunished. He also hates the innocent being wrongly punished. And this is set up as a kind of preventative measure. God's kingdom is a place of justice. I... I take it there is some form of justice in our world, both to punish the guilty and to protect the innocent. We should be glad for the justice system we have in this country and the justice it brings. But it's only a measure of justice. There are miscarriages of justice. And there is injustice, which we should both lament and and stand against where we can because we know God is a God of justice. Uh, This means that the church, where we're trying to live with Jesus as king, as part of his kingdom, should be a community that holds to justice. Now, there's not a direct parallel. We're not going to deal with murder accusations and so on. But there will be accusations in the life of the church. And we want to deal with those well and fairly, not jump to conclusions. 
Our current cultural climate tends towards believing any accusations, particularly those of kind of abuse of people, for example. It tends that way and tends towards a kind of cancel culture that simply jumps on people as soon as an accusation is made. We want to resist that. This tells us God is against that kind of jumping to conclusions and jumping on people. Not that he's against good investigation, good procedures and appropriate conclusions. He's all for that because he's all for justice. But he's against that pylon culture. And this also tells us that Jesus' kingdom when he returns will truly be a place where every wrong is righted, where any injustice is overturned. A place that the New Testament says where righteousness dwells. That becomes the great hope in the New Testament in this area. God effectively says, uh, yes, there'll be some measure of justice here and now, but ultimately leave justice to me. If we're those who feel we've received injustice in some way that isn't being remedied here and now that's a source of great confidence and comfort uh, last thing on God's justice here there's something a bit weird I don't know if you noticed verse 6 the person has to stay in the city until the high priest who's serving has died. Now, we're not given a lot of explanation here, okay, but it is a bit strange because you could think, well, hey, look, if they're innocent, why can't they just go home? It's, it, it's like they have to stay. I mean, the, the city of refuge is a place of safety and a little bit of a prison. <laughs> they can't go home until the high priest has died. Why? why? We're, we're not told. It seems most likely they have to stay in recognition that a, a kind of a wrong has been committed. A, de a life has been taken. Not that they meant it, but it, it has happened. And that the death of the high priest somehow then pays for that, covers that over, draws a line so that they can then move on. There's, um, there's other stuff in the Old Testament behind this about how you can redeem uh, people from certain wrongdoing. You can pay a fine or whatever, but you can't redeem someone for killing someone. That's a sort of unredeemable thing. Except here, the death of the high priest seems to produce freedom. And if that's the right understanding, I think it's only a line, but it wonderfully points us to how God does bring justice for truly guilty people like us because Jesus is the high priest we're told in the New Testament who dies in the place of the guilty to draw a line to bring freedom God's kingdom is a place of justice wonderfully for us it's also a place of mercy secondly God's kingdom is about relationship chapter 21 
the towns for the Levites, the family heads of the Levites, verse 1, they come to Eliezer and Joshua and the heads and they say, verse 2, the Lord commanded through Moses that you give us towns to live in with pasture flocks. No, pasture for our flocks. Um, the Levites are one of the 12 tribes. The, uh, Israel, the nation of Israel divided into 12 groups from 12 sons. Levi was one of them, the Levites. And they were designated as priests and we've read about them earlier in Joshua we're told they weren't given a specific allotment of land as their inheritance because we were told that their priestly duty and the Lord himself was their inheritance they're in a kind of they're in a different category to the rest of the nation and again earlier in the Bible God had said give the Levites towns to live in and so they come and they say here, the Lord told you through Moses to give us towns. And so verse 3, as the Lord had commanded, the Israelites gave the Levites the following towns and pasture lands out of their own inheritance. So the Levites are provided for, as it were, by everybody else, by all the other tribes, giving a little bit of their land and towns. And starting in verse 4, we get the lots coming out of the bag for which uh, cities and so on. 48 towns or cities across the nation. If you look at it on a map, it's like they're, just, they're pretty randomly scattered. It's like you take a part, you know, 48 stones or something, it's going to throw them and just they end up in a mass. So we end up with these Levites provided for by everybody else, and scattered across the nation. So let's get you doing some thinking. You've heard enough from me for a minute. Um, with your neighbour for a moment, why? Why do you think it's helpful to have these Levites scattered around the nation and provided for in this way? I'll only give you a minute. If you haven't got any answers, don't worry. We'll come to that. But think about that for one second. Why scatter the Levites like that? Okay, let's feed back. So if you're, if you're new to Grace, by the way, just a moment of explanation. If you're new to Grace and um, you wonder why the lights go off sometimes in here, and you're thinking, who's playing with the light switch? They're, some of them, they're motion sensitive. And so if I stand still and you sit still, eventually lights go off, which is, which is why Mark just now is trying to wave his arms. He's got to try and make them turn on again. Anyway, 
just in case you're wondering. Yeah, thank, thank you, Martin, for standing up. Yay! <laughs> there we go. Okay, any thoughts? I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued as to what you might find, what you might say. Why, why scatter the Levites around in this way? Any, any quick thoughts? Yes, David. An early attempt to set up diocese. By, and so by diocese, David is referring to the Church of England, which has, divides the country up into different areas with people in charge of it. Well, it could be. could be. Let's um, we'll come back to that. Um, yep. So that everyone, everyone has access to people who are training them to uh, teach his word, teaching them how to, how to worship God. Yep. How up over there somewhere, Tim? So if they were all together, they could be self-serving rather than serving the community. So they're spread around people, potentially. Yeah. Some other hands up? To supply their needs. Sorry, say that again? To supply, their needs. to supply their needs. I mean, partly it's, it's actually so that no one, tri- um, um, one, no one other tribe is with the burden of looking after all of them. They spread out so that, so that the whole of the nation is providing for them because they're going to serve the whole nation. So there's a sort of a reciprocal thing going on there. Yeah, Rob. Are there kind of examples of holiness? So they were called to a particular standard of holiness. Yeah. Desire for all of Israel to be holy. Yeah, yeah. There is, so that the, they set an example for people, so it's to be a standard of holiness. So look, all of this feeds in from what we know about the Levites from elsewhere, which you guys are wonderfully reflecting. I've said they were priests. That is, they're kind of go-betweens between the people and God, sort of mediators of that relationship. How could people in Israel relate to God, come before him, know him? For them, they'd have to say, well, I, I need a priest. I need a Levite between me and God. And this was seen most obviously at the sacrifices, at the altar, at the temple of meeting, later in the temple. That was central to relationship with God. That was where sin was atoned for. You were aware you did something wrong. You wanted to confess it and ask God to forgive you. You needed a priest. Relationship was repaired through them. Now, not all of the Levites did that. Only some of them did. But others helped in all of that role. But all of them were actually to teach God's people. And as Robert said, to be an example to God's people. They were to lead people to know God and live for God and worship God. So one verse earlier in the Bible says of the Levites that they offer incense before God and burnt offerings on his altar. Yes, the sacrifices. And they teach God's precepts to Israel, his law to Jacob. They were key in allowing this relationship to happen. That's why I think they're spread across the nation. It's for the sake of relationship with God. Now that has changed. That's one of the things in the model in the Old Testament that has been fulfilled in the New Testament. We don't have priests like that anymore. Jesus is the priest who's offered the sacrifice so we can all approach God through Jesus and have confidence. In fact, it's like in Jesus, in the New Testament we read, it's like we all become priests. We can all have access into God's presence like the priests could. I mean, back then, actually, the, certain of the priests could get in. Only the high priest could get really close. In the New Testament, it's like we all become high priests. We can all get right into God's presence through the work of Jesus. 
we can all know God directly. Oh, we still have teachers, pastors in the church, but someone like me is not a mediator between people and God. I try and be a, a helpful person to others in their relationship with God. Direct, not through me. And this all gets fulfilled then in John's vision in the, in, in the New Testament of the new creation where he says that I didn't see a temple in the new Jerusalem because God himself and the Lamb, Jesus, are its temple. It's like that relationship with them is now face to face. It's completed. So God's kingdom is about creating and living in relationship with us. And back then, back here in the model, the Levites were key to that relationship. For us, Jesus is key to that relationship. And the work of the Spirit now. But the point is, at the very heart of the kingdom that God is building, is knowing him and living in relationship with him. That's what he wants. That's what he offers you if you are someone considering Jesus. Do we appreciate that, value that, long to grow in and live out that relationship? Uh, lastly, God's kingdom fulfills all his promises. Verse 43 at the end of chapter 22, after the dividing up of all of these things, is everything's happened now. And so we read, the Lord gave Israel all the land he'd sworn to give their ancestors. And then they took possession of it and settled there. The Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their ancestors. Not one of their enemies withstood them. The Lord gave all their enemies into their hands. Not one of all the Lord's good promises to Israel failed. Every one was fulfilled. Now I've said these are these are basically the climax, really, to the book of Joshua. We've got a few chapters to go, and we'll see the significance of them as we get there. But this is the, the high point. We've arrived. They're so key, I want you to talk to your neighbor about them. Have a look at them. You'll see some repetition, what is being repeated in it, what is being emphasized in it with your neighbor for a moment, and then we'll feed back.
Okay, let's, um, let's feel back again. Here's here some quick thoughts from you guys. What's being repeated, what's being emphasized in those closing verses? Yeah, Richard. Thank you. So, uh, his promises, he swore, he swore, he made his promises. And then the all, all of them, all of them, not one of them. Brilliant. Thank you. John? Very good. Very good. Uh, sworn to their ancestors, and that's come up before, uh, the promises were made a really long time ago. So it's taken quite a long time to get here. We'll come back to that in a second. Yeah, Tim. So I said again. Pasture lands in terms of provisions. They've, he's given them every, all the provision they need. Yep. Yep. Anything else? Yeah, Derek. It's all a gift. The word gave. Happens many times, yeah. It's all given. And then a hand was in the middle somewhere. No? Linda? It reminded me of Joshua and the sack of Jericho and all that came to Yeah. Well, so things like the Battle of Jericho, which Linda's mentioning, as an example of he gave all their enemies into his, their hands. So look, it's all about what God has given. God gave the land. God gave them rest gave them their enemies. We've seen in all the previous weeks that the people are involved in this whole task. Uh, the people act in different ways, but ultimately entering the kingdom is a gift. God does it. God is the actor. Um, it's all about what God gave because of what God promised what he swore. He gave the land that he had sworn. He gave them the rest as he had sworn. Not one of his promises had failed. Or um, it's literally um, not one promise fell to the ground, like kind of proved empty, kind of fell short. And you can tell it's an important section because of the repetition, things like not one of their enemies withstood them, he gave all their enemies into their hand. Not one of the promises failed. They're all fulfilled. Let me, let me just say it twice. Now, as Matthew mentioned with John, this has been a long time coming. These promises of a nation living at rest in this land were sworn to Abraham hundreds of years earlier when he lived a long way away from this land and where there was no nation, he had no children. Then his many descendants become a nation. But they end up as slaves in Egypt, making bricks for Pharaoh. And at that point, sitting in the dirt, making bricks, eating the promised fruit of the land would seem like a bit of a pipe dream. But they are rescued. They then face various obstacles and battles on the way, but they're brought through it. They arrive at the edge of the promised land, but they face the enemies inside it. 
but now they are in. They are given the land, verse 43. They take possession and they settle. They are given rest on every side. Enemies are defeated. They can sit down. They can enjoy life in the land in relationship with God. The kingdom has arrived. It's come in, in this form, at least, in the model form. The model's been built. It shows us what God's plans are, what, what his good promises are all about. He wants his people living in his place, in his land, in relationship with him, at rest, in harmony. And it's all because his promises have been fulfilled. But this is the model. God's promises don't end here. This is a kind of staging post where God's people at this point could pause and look backwards and say, he's fulfilled it all. And yet he's promised more than this. This is just the model. He's promised truly rescuing his people from their enemies of sin and Satan and death. He's promised relationship with him, not simply through priests and others, but through his word and spirit and then face to face. He's promised forgiveness of sin and new life that transforms his people. He's promised recreation of this world. So it's not just a good land flowing with milk and honey, but it is a new heavens and a new earth. He's promised a full and final rest. And those good promises are what means he then sends Jesus to bring his kingdom those good promises are what he is working out here and now in this world. And those good promises are the promises that one day will be fulfilled. If we trust in Christ, we could say, we can look forward to our own ver version of verses 43 to 45. Where we stand and we look back and we say, the Lord has given us everything, the the, the new creation he's promised and the great rest that he's promised and all of his promises to us in Christ are fulfilled. And we will say on that day, he's given us everything that he swore and it's come about just as he promised. That gives a certain direction to life this is what God's plan is this is what he's doing in the world he's bringing his kingdom we pray as Jesus taught us may your kingdom come and we long for that day this is where God's taking the world and it is part of our duty and delight to be part of that this is God's agenda the question is is it our agenda are we giving ourselves to what he is doing in the world It gives a certain direction. It also gives a certain confidence. Not, not because of us and our abilities, not at all, but because God is doing it. God has promised it and he will bring it.
one very practical suggestion for you if you want to do something different this week. Each morning this week, just read verse 45 to yourself. Not one of all the Lord's good promises to Israel failed. Every one was fulfilled. And say to yourself, God's made good promises in Jesus. And he is fulfilling them now. And one day I will look back and I will say, not one of them has failed. Everyone is fulfilled. Just read that verse and say that to yourself each morning this week. Grow in that sense of direction, that sense of confidence. Because God's kingdom, God's kingdom is coming because he will fulfill his promises to us. Let's have a moment's quiet.